Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of Dress Media. With over 8 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Trust, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Dressed listeners, today we have the distinct pleasure of introducing many of you to one of the greatest textile designers of the 20th century. You know, those of you who are interior designers or maybe fashion and textile historians might be familiar with her work, but I'm going to wager that the name Dorothy Liebes is new to a lot of our audience. And please be forewarned here, because if you did not know the name Dorothy Liebes until now, you probably are about to become a little bit smitten. (laughs) Um, And Cass and I love doing these episodes where we get to shine a light on the life and career of makers whose history and notoriety has faded a little bit with time, especially women makers, like our subject today, the inimitable Dorothy Liebes, who was affectionately known by her friends and family as Dynamo Dot. And we must say that nickname is because she was a powerhouse in her day, one of the most influential figures in mid-century modern design, hands down. And Liebes created both artisanal handloom textiles, which were commissioned and revered by interior designers and architects, like one, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah, casual. <laughs> uh, casual. <laughs> <laughs> and then while at the same time, she skillfully translated many of her visionary designs into power-loomed mass productions. She was also a highly sought-after and highly paid consultant for the textile industry at large, Her unique sense of color and texture remains influential to this day in the world of textile design. And this is a fact which is underscored currently in the exhibition, A Dark, A Light, A Bright, The Designs of Dorothy Liebes, which is currently on view at the Cooper Hewitt, the Smithsonian's Design Museum in NYC. Today, fashion and textile historian Lee Wishner joins us to talk about Liebes' incredible body of work and a bit about some of the fashion designers who were also Liebes' devotees. And and I say this because within design history, Liebes is best known for her textiles for interiors. So we're talking about like upholstery, window treatments, fabric screens, etc. But lesser known, but no less exquisite are her fashion fabrics. Yes, and we're so excited. Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Your appearance undressed has only been a few years in the making now. So we are, <laughs> this is a very enthusiastic welcome. Lee, a very overdue welcome to Dressed, and I say this, (laughs) we have basically been cajoling you to grace us with your knowledge of textile history for some time now. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad that our our universes collided and um, we have converged and we can talk about all things textile design. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, well. first, though, I would like to ask you one of my very favorite questions that Cass and I regularly pose to our guests, and that is, how did you first come to the field of fashion and textile studies? And also, what have you been up to professionally for the last few years? Well, um, I came to my love of textiles and fashion 
early in life, but never mm-hmm. realized it was a discipline until I left college, actually. <laughs> um, I had studied art history and archaeology in college and was very much focused on material culture without ever knowing it. Mm-hmm. It was actually called material culture because in art history courses, they never talk about <laughs> that stuff. Um, so when I did finally wanted to go into art conservation, I discovered the world of Bard Graduate Center in New York, which is all about material culture, decorative arts, and design. And so that's how I found, fell into the world of fashion and textiles um, with Michelle Major as my fearless leader <laughs> into the <laughs> realm of, Cor- of Cora Ginsburg's, which was mm-hmm. then my stepping stone into my true full-blown mania about textiles. I worked in a magical place where I was exposed to centuries worth of textiles from all areas of the globe, and I really developed my passion there. Would you tell us a little bit about Cora Ginsburg, if some of our listeners oh. are not familiar with that? Absolutely. Uh, if I, have, <laughs> I know. I assume that everybody knows because <laughs> I think it's world famous. But um, it is. Cora it Gins- is in our world. Is. That's true. <laughs> Cora Ginsburg Gallery um, is helmed by the extraordinary T.T. Halley, um, who actually was mentored by Cora Ginsburg, who was a collector of fashion and textiles, mostly, I would say, 18th and 19th century. Um, And she started a business when she perceived a a place in the market for this Mm -hmm. material. So she was sort of one of the early dealers in costume and textiles. And um, Michelle Major, who was my professor at Bart Graduate Center, worked, uh, works for TT still, and um, I, I kind of got a class assignment and found myself in the beautiful, you know, this beautiful brownstone on the Upper East Side. It's no longer in that location, but um, it was just a magical environment to come into. Um, it was a crossroads for all museum curators and collectors and aficionados. And it was just a wonderful education. And I really, the, the hands-on learning was what I really valued the most. So. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. In our world, all roads lead through Cora Ginsburg. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like right? to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what came next in your journey? After Cora Ginsburg's, I actually decided to move back to Los Angeles, uh, which is my hometown. And um, I was lucky enough to find a position, a curatorial position at LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Um, as a, uh, a curatorial as- assistant and um, in the costume and textiles department. And it was a really valuable education for me as- there as well, more in terms of what it's like to work in a large institution. Um, mm-hmm. I was really grateful to have arrived there with a really broad knowledge of mm-hmm. textiles and costumes. So that was great. Um, after that, I moved over to the FIDM Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. And I was there for um, five years, uh, working mm-hmm. in a variety of roles. Um, my biggest accomplishment and the, the last role that I inhabited, I believe, was with the social media. I managed the social media for the museum and I shared information with um about our collection and about things in the field uh, with the broadest audience possible. And that gave me the biggest pleasure. So I'm, and now right, right now I'm kind of um, in between things. I'm not really sure what my next steps are. I'm 
um, just freelancing right now. Um, we'll see what's next. And plugging away on a book. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Of course. How can I forget that? Yes. This is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like my raison d'etre. Um, I am working on a book. Yes. On, um, pattern design and textiles in 20th century America specifically mm-hmm. and all right. of the, the wonderful things that were, uh, we can learn from just looking at pattern design. Well, 20th century America is exactly the spot we're going to take off from here for the rest of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about the woman who has been called, quote, one of the most important designers of the 20th century. She has also been called the greatest weaver alive. And uh, despite these accolades, I'm guessing that very few of our listeners are entirely familiar with the name Dorothy Liebes. So I know you are a huge Liebes fan. How did you first Mm -hmm. discover her work? And I'm also hoping that you could set up a little bit of her background for us. Sure. Wow. Well, I first came to Liebes's work in graduate school um, Mm -hmm. in my textiles courses with Michelle Major. Um, So I I learned about her also in the context of, of other important 20th century weavers in general, which, of which there are many. I mean, she she got that moniker because she was so high profile at, at that particular moment of time and because she worked in industry so so broad, so um, prominently. Mm-hmm. But um, I only heard really her her name in context with furnishings and interior design. Mm-hmm. And fabrics made for all these grand interiors, um, private commissions and public spaces and all of these things. Um, and I, her work really clicked for me the first time I went to Shangri-La in Honolulu, which is, I, I didn't really know the specifics of all the, uh, the Doris Dukes, um, you know, how she built her, her Shangri-La pad in, in Honolulu. But um, I walked into one of the rooms and I was like, oh my gosh, the, the, the upholstery on this couch is Dorothy Liebes. And then I started looking around and seeing more and more and realizing that she was, she was hiding in plain sight in some of the most important places in, in architecture. But yeah. I never knew she worked in fashion. Like, just mm-hmm. never, never knew it until I was approached for this project. Well, not, not, not exactly at that point. I'm sorry. I did know a little bit before I was approached for this project. That's why I was approached for the project. <laughs> but it was a, it was, that was a, rev, that was a revelation for, for, for most people. But I mean, it was truly a revelation how much she did just in the fashion arena. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was astounding, like staggering to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and how yeah. did, how did she herself come to textile design? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about Liebes is she was Californian. Um, she, her background really is, I would say, in education. Um, she mm-hmm. taught art history. She studied art history. She studied design. She taught design. She, she just, like, for the first, you know, portion of her career, she was really em- enmeshed in, in teaching others about how to look at art and how to appreciate art and design. Um, you know, she got her first loom and she started weaving small scale pieces, um, and then just kind of took to it and really felt it was a great medium for her expression. 
I think it also allowed her to connect to all these different worlds. Uh, she mm-hmm. never saw the boundaries of like, oh, I can only work in, you know, architectural design or I can only work in fashion. She just never saw boundaries. Um, and so she just, she from, from like the mid, it was like the late twenties, uh, she, she was weaving enough fabric yardage on her own to walk into, um, the Liebes department store in San Francisco for an appointment to sell some yardage and that's how she met her her first husband mm-hmm. um and so that kind of situated her very well to um she, you know she married she started to get more and more prominent and um it, it kind of just snowballed from there yeah well uh, well dorothy married leon Liebus in 1928 to be specific yes she was 31 years old at that time but the two actually separated very early in their marriage. And I'm going to ask why, because this <laughs> has to do with her, the trajectory of her professional career. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I guess that Leon Liebus was tolerant of his wife's activities up to a point. And then I, there was a tipping point at which he started just getting more and more accolades and more and more attention. And he started getting more and more displeased by her, the attention she was receiving. She, he, mm-hmm. he really wished she would just keep it as a hobby on the side. Right. Um, you know, like a respectable wife would. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead, he didn't want she her was selling like, her work, essentially. No, he did not want no, her to become not. a professional textile designer, a professional weaver. No, no, he really wanted to hamper her ambitions and she just couldn't abide by that. And mm-hmm. so they actually separated um, in 1930, uh, uh, 30 or 31, um, but they didn't actually divorce until 1940. And mm-hmm. when they did, like all, all she really wanted was to keep her loom. That's right. all she requested. Right. Um, so <laughs> it was like... Very, very independent, headstrong person who was not going to let the dictates of what a respectable woman should be doing um, stand in her way. And so she respect. I, I mean, I think that it was fairly amicable. It wasn't like a messy situation, but they. She just decided, I, I need to go my own way. She did remarry um, later in life, and her husband was more supportive. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. she. <laughs> It did not stop her. <laughs> well, I think it's so interesting that um, from that moment that she kind of decided to make that decision to separate from Leon and that this is what she wanted to do with the rest of her life, her immense talent and her very unique creative voice were recognized within the industry pretty quickly. So yes. would you tell us about her signature style um, and also maybe perhaps a little bit about some of her very, very early professional commissions? Her style, well, a hallmark of her, her work in general is color. Um, mm-hmm. You'll notice that right from the get-go as you start looking through. Now, she could work in a subtle palette, um, but she really just... She, she had a masterful command of color mm-hmm. and employed it in ways that people were, I think at the time, were still too timid to do. Uh, so she she really pushed forward like bright, hot colors. Um, the, I think the mid-century palette that we think of so, so strongly visually, it's really, I think we can owe that to her. 
um, mm-hmm. in the way that she color she color advised for companies and um, in her in her own work she she kind of didn't stray too far from a fairly simple formula of we of, of the two two of the most basic weave structures which would be plain weave and twill weave um, mm-hmm. and she was sort of felt that the simplicity of those types of weaves were the best way for her to express um, an experimentation of what you can do with a, such a simple structure by varying textures and colors and um, reflectiveness all within this very simple formula. And it's amazing what she did. What type of things was she using in her designs? Oh my gosh. Um, an amazing array. Uh, so right from the get-go, she was really interested in experimenting with new materials. Uh, she did say on record that silk was by far her favorite material to work with. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. you can't improve on Mother Nature, but she also loved um, cellophane, for example. That was some of, one of her earliest experimental materials when it was being it was very you know fashionable in the '30s. Um, Scaparelli made it huge and she was exposed to Scaparelli early on. Um, so cellophane, let's see, um, ribbons, uh, Chinese mm-hmm. brocaded ribbons are what actually attracted, um, Adrian to, mm-hmm. to Liebes's work. Um, she used, uh, chenille for like a plush kind of texture. She used leather, um, passamontry, like things like, uh, I, one of, some of my favorite Liebes pieces uh, incorporate rickrack as wefts <laughs> and they're wonderful to watch because you see, you see how they have to go, you know, how they have to, uh, adjust the warps around the rickrack wefts to make them go through. And it's, I love seeing those types of things in her work. Um, I love the, the best is, uh, she even wove Christmas lights into a panel she designed for the Persian room. Yeah. So Christmas lights were even uh, wefts in her world. Um, and uh, one of the cutest jokes I, I read somewhere was that her friends would joke, like, don't stand too close to one of Dorothy's looms or she's apt to weave you right into it. So it was just like anything that was around. Uh, oh, this is not fashion related, but, um, for her interior projects, she was really well known for using bamboo and reeds mm-hmm. um, to make these really incredible wall divider, um, room dividers and uh, window shades. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that she really um, also kind of pioneered is that that window slat look. But that was also based on an Asian prototype. So she she just was not afraid to try any material. And that also brings us to like Orlon and Dacron and Antron and all of the synthetics that she got involved with as mm-hmm. professionally as well. Yeah. And metallics, <laughs> metallics, Oh my metallics. gosh. Did I leave out Lurex? Yes. Metallics, metallics, metallics. So she always used metal strip. Um, so just plain metal strips, obviously, but those are not that easy to weave with. Um, mm-hmm. They, they bend. Once you bend them, they start to lose their properties of, of um, memory. And so you can bend and break metal very easily mm-hmm. in weaving. But if you take a material like Lurex, which was um, one of her most successful, one of the, the products she, she championed most successfully, I would say, um, it's, a, it's a 
thin aluminum sheet that is cut into thin strips and it can be colored and then it's laminated um, in mm -hmm. plastic. And what that process does is it seals the metal inside so that it doesn't, it's not exposed to air or moisture. So it becomes pliable, it becomes non-tarnishing, it's not scratchy, it doesn't, it, yeah, it can go in water and not rust. I mean, all these important things. Uh, that, was the, that was the magic of Lorax. And she was like a proselytizer for that, that, that product. She devised color schemes for all the Lorax products. She helped advise how it should be used with what fibers and what blends. Um, she, I mean, she, she was a, an amazing cross promoter. She would get like, you know, one client to use another client's products. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, she would advise DuPont, like, okay, mix it with this much Lorex from this company and from the Jebekman company. And, you know, she was really amazing connector and made a lot of things happen. And, and one of her goals really was to make Lorex a, a must for fashion editors. And she did yeah. because yeah. we still have this product on the market today and it's still very much the must for any cloth of gold type of fabric you see on the marketplace now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love <laughs> those Lorex fabrics that she did because so she was so good at making them very playful. And that playfulness is usually um, the result of a sort of like juxtaposition or, or contrast and textures. So sometimes you'll mm -hmm. have like a, like, a, like a soft, schlubby woolen yarn or maybe like a silk, um, but that's mm -hmm. juxtaposed next to the metallic lurex. I mean, so beautiful and so smart. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just, they invite so much... Um, inspection uh all mm -hmm. of her textiles from close and far it's like you just want to get up close to them and then you want to touch them I mean she was even she was even quoted as saying I feel I'm hurt like her feelings are hurt when people don't want to touch her textiles or when they don't yeah. touch her textiles now of course in a museum context that's like ah we don't want to hear that but um I I know there's absolutely something to that that they invite this in, this this close intimacy with what they're made out of and, and your eyes just want to explore what is happening with this. She loved these boucle yarns mixed. So you see these little, these little loops that come off of the surface and they're just kind of like, um, like <laughs> they remind me of a Luchilato from, you know, Renaissance textiles, these loops that kind of come up to delight the eye. Mm -hmm. Um, well, excuse me for my textile geekery. I can't help myself, but <laughs> Oh, oh, that is highly prized on dress podcast. I, <laughs> I just, I was like, yeah, I just really wanted to work, use the word alucinato. <laughs> but yeah, she just never stopped trying new things. And I feel like her work is so accessible. You can look at it and understand it. Like you see it. It's mm -hmm. not that, um, it's not that inscrutable. Like you really see the over, under, over, under. And you can follow, that's the thing. I love following her wefts, like, whatever she uses. I mean, she, she was really well known for experimenting with lots of unusual materials and you can follow that little weft as it goes across and back and you can see what it does. And that I feel like is something that also makes it approachable for, for, for the average person. Yeah. And, and when we say approachable, it doesn't mean that they weren't insanely smart. Like, oh, it, there's a certain simplicity to her work that reads as like, 
a smart intellectual clarity. Does that make any sense? Like, oh yeah, that's a perfect way of describing it because it it's, she lays it all out for you. Yes, exactly. Yes, and it's thoughtful exactly. and deliberate. It's nothing yeah. that's just like oh you know I'll randomly put these things together and I think they work. It's deliberate. I mean, she mm-hmm. her her color sense was was fine. Her her sense of what different materials do in light and different levels of light. It was so refined that, yeah, she was, that's where her skills were so, um, I think that's why she was also so uh, instantly embraced by, by industry is because she could translate those like properties into something else. And she could make it so that a whole class of consumers wants what she sees as, as, fine you know so yeah I know I think she she designs with a clarity um she experimented fearlessly and I think she just hit on that magical formula of color texture and glitter so yeah yeah As you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation, so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Well, I love this quote from Levis. Uh, in 1960, she remarked, I don't weave, I design. 
And this really kind of underscores the point that her venture also was not a solo operation. You know, she found commercial success in the architectural realm uh, fairly quickly. So her her studio was a rather remarkable place, um, a remarkable makerspace for a variety of reasons. Would you tell us a little bit about how her studio operated? Well, you know, she had uh, her early studios were all in San Francisco. Um, Mm -hmm. And eventually in the 50s, she moved her operations to New York after she was she got married and her husband was based in New York. He worked for the Associated Press. And she also recognized that New York was a a good place for her to be professionally. It was where a lot of her corporate clients were. It was just, you know, a hotbed of design activity always has been. Um, So one of her big I mean, yes, she wove uh, private uh, commissions she wove, um, you know, custom, custom woven, uh, fabrics, hand woven fabrics, I should say, um, for large scale architectural commissions, um, in San Francisco and New York across the globe. She was a very progressive business person who had an incredibly diverse studio. She had Asian, Indian, um, she had, a gay, straight. She, she had every type of person working for her and it didn't matter to her. She celebrated them for who they were and she looked at their abilities. And then she also promoted them beyond her studio. You know, she helped people and set up their own businesses, for example, like Darren Pierce, who wound up being the first, like first, um, gay man owned, a wool emporium in, in, uh, (laughs) In New York City, um, Woolworks was his business. Uh, he mm-hmm. basically an embroidery needlepoint type of shop, and Dorothy Levis helped him set it up. She was an investor. She she helped um, foster new talent and encourage others and connect people together in endeavors. And I think that's also a good a good lasting um, legacy that she's left is that this is how you can run a business. You can be mm-hmm. kind, compassionate. You can um, have your your workers bring their children to work, as she let her you know her studio employees do. It was it was a model for a modern future, and it's something that we can still learn from today. Yeah, yeah. Well, she had a, a mother daughter duo that worked within her studio. Yes, if I'm not correct, yes, right? Louise and Vanita Fong. Yes, yes. Uh-huh. It was yeah. It was a great environment, um, and people have very fond memories of of working there. I probably am not the right person to tell you about all of those things. Um, in fact, I would just recommend everybody get the book and read all of my colleagues' amazing work on all of the, the different people that she knew and worked for. But I'll just, I'll rattle off a few because it's really mm-hmm. astonishing how many people Please. she was <laughs> close with and knew and worked with. So in the architectural realm, um, I would say, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, somebody you've heard of, <laughs> Ed Durrell Stone, um, Timothy Fluger, um, William Palman, uh, Francis Elkins was a very close friend of hers, interior designer, um, and mm-hmm. Billy Haynes as well in Los Angeles was hugely important for her in terms of uh, connections to the Hollywood sphere. So mm-hmm. um, Edward G. Robinson, the actor, and Jack Warner, uh, one of the heads of Warner Brothers, uh, they were famous clients. Mm-hmm. Um, oh boy, in the world of fashion, 
there's the there's the the Hollywood crew. Um, so you have Adrian, uh, Travis Banton used one of Dorothy's fabrics for a very famous um, uh, publicity shot for Lucille Ball in Lover Lover Come Back. Um, Edith Head also used her fabrics. Uh, Irene. So then, and then like the, then the in American the American look scene for the for the fashion designers we have Claire Potter. Uh, who was also a very close friend of Levis's. Um, we have Pauline Trigier, um, Claire McArdle, Nettie Rosenstein. Mr. John was a good friend of hers and made all of her role hats. Um, Lily Dashe. And, you know, of course, there's our good old pal, Bonnie Cashin. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she's the big one. <laughs> your, your chapter in the exhibition catalog is actually entitled Modern Fashion's Secret Weapon. Um, mm-hmm. All of these fashion designers were employing Levis textiles, but I don't think any of them are more emblazoned in our brain than, of course, Bonnie Cashin. Um, and they were also quite close friends as well. Yes. So. I'm hoping that you might speak to um, her friendship and her working relationship with Cashin as well. Absolutely. It's just such a wonderful story and a wonderful topic. Um, And I have to thank uh, Dr. Stephanie Lake for helping me with my research uh, on Bonnie because she holds the um, correspondence uh, between the two friends. And that was so helpful to me in understanding their, the closeness of their relationship and, uh, the nature of their relationship. So they mm-hmm. met um, in the mid-1940s uh, while Cashin was actually working as a costume designer uh, for 20th Century Fox. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mentioned some of the the big names that that used her fabrics, like Adrian and Edith Head and whatnot. So it's really, it's, it's not surprising that they probably met sometime, like while Dorothy Lewis was visiting, you know, uh, to, to deliver some fabrics for for something because despite the fact that she was never credited on screen, her fabrics are all over Hollywood movies, um, mm-hmm. all over. I mean, big, big productions like Adam's Rib um, with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Um, movies like, oh, um, East Side, West Side with Ava mm-hmm. Gardner and Barbara Stanwyck. They're just everywhere, but she never really got the, the the credit she deserves for that. But that's how they they came into the same orbit. And then mm-hmm. when when Cashin relocated to New York um, in the late late forties, early fifties, um, that was when they they were very. I mean, they were already close by then. But then at some point, they like Bonnie and Cashin lived with Dorothy Liebes at first, and and you know it was like very close, very close. And they would go, they would go to art galleries together, all like a Saturday shopping, but it wasn't shopping. It was just for your visual feasting, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they would go to museums and galleries and just kind of put on their comfy shoes and kind of truck up and down the avenues. So they did, and they traveled together and they vacationed and all these wonderful things just brought them into orbit together. But the fabric connection was obviously very strong and Bonnie was sort of, cash in, I should say, uh, she was an experimenter as well. Like at, mm-hmm. at their core, they both didn't like rules and didn't like to be told what they could do with a specific fabric or not. And so I know that, you know, cash in joked, like she used one of, um, <laughs> Liebes's, 
like casement fabric. So for a window, you know, so something sheer and kind of screening. Um, she used a fabric like that for a, a, a blouse and sort of said, said something like, well, if, if it can screen a window, why can't it screen a body? You know, so she would lo- be looking at something in an unorthodox way. And I mm-hmm. think that that is basically describes Libus in a nutshell as well. So they got together for their most uh, incredible collaboration where Libus's name was also front and center, um, which was called Skirtings Inc. And it was a mm-hmm. collection of skirts that came out in 19 first came out in 1956 they she made them for a few years and they were basically incredible showcases for Dorothy Leibis fabrics um Mm -hmm. they used um you know glittery lurex and bright colors and um they were meant as collector's items so Mm -hmm. they were very expensive um but they were just the perfect blend of Bonnie's sensibility in terms of the way that they were shaped and crafted um, to use most of the fabric instead of cutting and wasting and piecing. It was like very like this effect was almost like you wrapped a, a fabric around your waist and tied it. As collector's items, these skirts were fairly expensive um, and but they did generate a lot of publicity and they were in vogue and, and heavily featured in the press. Um, but they, the thing about the skirts for Skirting Zinc was that they really featured the fabric and they did the most, Bonnie did the most to respect what, what Libus had produced. Um, so she didn't do a lot of piecing or cutting or, you know, anything like that. It was almost like the effect of taking a blanket and wrapping it around your hips. Um, a very fact, gorgeous one, the, one, I must say. <laughs> yes, and a, and a very high-profile uh, example is still um, is now in the Mets collection, um, courtesy of the Brooklyn collection, um, and it was donated by uh, Gypsy Rose Lee, who was the burlesque, oh, wow. you know, famous burlesque performer, um, and she was a very good friend of Bonnie's. Um, there's great uh, photos of. Uh, a like an apartment party where Gypsy Rose Lee is talking to Bonnie Cashin and she's wearing a, a Cashin Skirtings Inc. skirt. And you'll see it in the exhibition as well um, and in the catalog. So I definitely recommend you seeing it on a human body is really a, a sight to behold. Um, so yeah, these skirts were really um, just meant to be special and I don't think that there were a lot of them made because the fabric was very, very expensive. But they're out there, and uh, I'm always looking for one. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And I know exactly which skirt you're speaking of. It's 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 kind of like a hot turquoise, kind of like yeah. green, and it has yes. one of the little um, hooks um, at the waist yeah. where you can kind of drop the the hemline, or you can kind of like hitch it yeah. up on one side. It's supremely beautiful. Yes. Could you talk to us a little bit about this other? aspect of her career as an as a consultant to major corporations because she did quite a bit of this oh she sure did and I would say I mean it's hard to say where her bread and butter was in her professional Mm -hmm. life she I mean if you get the catalog you'll look there's an amazing um, chronology in the back and it's pages long and by Mm -hmm. year it's it, it documents all of the projects that she was working on all of the corporate clients she was juggling I swear this woman never slept no and 
and never, I mean, she did certainly choose what she wanted to do, but she had so many things she wanted to do. And I don't know how she did it all, but she did. And it's incredible because yes, companies were using her name and she actually, she actually insisted that they use her name. They're like, you better put my name in your advertisements because that is what's going to sell. And that is what they did by and large. She was name checked for her color authority by um, by the Lorex in the Lorex ads. Um, she she was in Janssen ads. I mean, she she consulted for Janssen for many years. Janssen swimwear, mm-hmm. um, providing um, textures for yarns, stripes, um, fabrics, designs for fabrics, and also devising their color palettes. So if you look at ads in the 40s, um, you'll see her name is like the leading color authority in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, she was absolutely on TV. She was, yeah, she was, she was in advertisements. She was everywhere. And yet her name just faded out of existence after she died. And my, my peers and I were, were we just kind of scratch our head that she was like literally a household name that just disappeared. And mm-hmm. I think that we've come to the conclusion that that largely happened because in the period of her, the, the strongest period of her creation, most of the photography was in black and white. So mm-hmm. most of the interiors that are documented in that period were done in black and white. And her work, although it translates in black and white to, you know, you can see different tones, it just suffers because there's not that, that, the, the brilliance of her, of her color acuity. Um, mm-hmm. It's just not on display. So I think that, you know, with, with the reemergence of, of this type of a publication devoted to her work, um, we are getting the photos of her samples next to the photos of the interior so that you can see um, how bold they are. And, and the same thing is happening with fashions as well. I mean, we we're still finding new, I mean, I, I can't, I, we comb the internet for new Bonnie Cash and pieces or new, um, new uh, Petulo Joe Copeland or, um, or Pauline Trigere pieces to show up because we'll know that there'll be some Jasco fabrics in there. For example, um, that was another one of her clients that she consulted for. Jasco um, supplied uh, Bonnie Cashin and, and Lily Dashay and others in the industry, a lot of jerseys. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and, and some of the power loomed um, fabrics that Cashin used for capes and, um, and other garments also come from Jasco. So, I mean, she just never stopped consulting. And I think that that's also sort of that whole idea of her being a designer rather than a, a weaver. She was just always thinking with an eye to to design and and new new media. And then also the most important, one of the most important things about her career was also how do I translate this for um, mass consumption. She mm-hmm. sets herself apart from other weavers in this period, um, like Mariah Kipp, especially some, another name that comes up with her regularly, but Mariah Kipp never wanted to do industry projects. Um, you know, designers like Marion Strangle did some, some things for automotive upholstery, 
But Leva's really was different because she wanted to get she wanted to get her hands on everything that was going into the American uh, consumers home on their body, wherever they were using her products. She wanted to have the influence to make it the best. So she would translate a lot of um, her weaves. And that was something that was really happening in her studios was they were creating a lot of samples samples for different clients, samples for different industry clients as well to show them what they could do with their products um, and how they can adapt them or with, with her studio products and how they could be adapted for power looming, which mm-hmm. to get the handwoven look on a machine that just does the same thing repetitively over and over again, it, that is the translation is an art as well. And that was a service she provided for her industry clients so that they could get their, get, you know, make bedspreads and um, uh, window drapes that were, you know, you could buy, you know, in a department store, not from through a decorator service, for example. And one of her yeah. last, one of her last clients was Sears. And she mm-hmm. was super excited about that. That was like one of her her proudest achievements was that she was getting to work with a company that she knew was like providing most of America with their goods. So mm-hmm. she didn't, she, she didn't really, turn her nose at anything. No, she did it all, you know, so she's doing, she's yeah. over here working with Frank Lloyd Wright, right. Mm-hmm. Doing kind of like yeah. hand woven, one of a kind commission pieces for his homes that live in these clients' homes, right, which were this really um, lovely juxtaposition of that kind of, like, stark modern architecture. And then she Mm -hmm. comes in with these, like, soft, schlubby textiles that have a lot of texture (laughs) um, and a lot of color, and and it pops, right, against that that style of, like, early modern architecture. Um, But yet she's also working with Sears. She wants to do it all. Um, And she was actually well-known. Um, at the time, not just within industry, but by the public as well. Um, she was really recognized as an authority on the topics of design and fine craft. And she appeared on the radio. She appeared on television programs discussing these topics. So it makes sense, as you've already alluded to, that the industry at large would hope to get in on a little bit of that Levis magic. DuPont, of course. So we've mentioned Lorex. So that was her first big achievement. Uh, she started consulting for DuPont in, in the 1950s um, when they started really pushing the fiber, the, the fiber uh, capabilities of some of their new products um, as they were being advertised as fashion fibers. Um, so we're talking Orlon and Antron and Dacron, um, the synthetics that she experimented with and advised how to blend them the best, like the best blends, um, best colors. And that was a huge, she was also catapulted to um, fame through the 1964 World's Fair because Mm -hmm. she advised for the DuPont um, display. She advised on what, you know, what should be highlighted. And it was a lot of fashion, a lot Mm -hmm. of fashion. And a lot of the great um, publicity photos um, from that, campaign are in the book and um in the exhibition space as well so that was that's great really gratifying to see her celebrated for that 
Well, speaking of exhibition spaces, um, mm. Liebes's status as a defining voice in the aesthetics of modernism was recognized publicly within her own lifetime with a couple of different museum retrospectives. Might you tell us a little bit about those that were put up during her lifetime and also how they relate to the current exhibition that's up at the Cooper Hewitt? Yes, well, it's really, it is kind of amazing. Um, For somebody who did have two actual retrospectives before this one, um, that she also still is not a household name. But I think it's because... Her first retrospective was in 1941, and so contextually, she really hadn't arrived in a professional way until the late 30s. So it was 25 years of design. It was called Mm -hmm. called 25 Years of Dorothy Wright Levis, and I've only seen a few black and white um, stills, so I can't really say how much uh, of, you know, there's there's not a lot of material out there on that. but it did feature some, uh, at least one Adrian jacket. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it took until 1970 for the next uh, showing devoted specifically to her to come about. And that was at the Museum of Contemporary Crafts, and which is now a Museum of Arts and Design in New York. And that traveled to the Smithsonian and other you know, U.S. venues. And that's not to say that in between 1941 and 1970, she didn't have work exhibited. She had work exhibited all over the place in many, many, many shows. But, you know, with a focus specifically on her, it was just those those two brief moments. Um, and it, I'm glad she got to have that 1970 respect, retrospective before she, before she died in 72, because I think she was able to really see the culmination of all of her work um, laid out for her in a brilliant format. And there's a lot of great color photos of that um, installation and some um, video footage of that as well. So I encourage everybody to go out and, and, and find find that. Um, one of the exciting highlights uh, for me personally in the exhibition um, is the cape that it was a Bonnie Cash in design made out of Dorothy Liebes fabric, design fabric, um, it was what she wore to the retrospective um, in 1970 and the family still has it and they Mm. lent it for the exhibition and like brought absolute tears to my eyes to see this, this, because it was like the touchstone for me that that beautiful moment of like everything coming so full circle that she's wearing this garment that was designed by her good friend from her own design fabric at her own retrospective, it was just like, that was this, that was like the Holy Grail object for me. And I, I was just so excited to see it in the exhibition. Yeah. And when you're referring to the exhibition, you are referring to the one that is currently oh, on view correct. at the Cooper Hewitt in New York city. <laughs> Would you tell us yes. a little bit about that? Yes. So this has been many years in the making, um, a dark, a light, a bright, the designs of Dorothy Liebes. It's also the title for the, um, the catalog, which is, actually more of a standalone book. It, it serves as sort of a companion piece for the exhibition, but it is it is more than just what's on exhibition. Um, but the exhibition is uh, just opened in July, July 7th, and it's up through February 6th. So you have a good ample window of time, which is unusual for a fashion and textile exhibition to have a six-month um, display period. So 
it means that you won't get a chance to see these pieces for a long time. So I would urge everybody to get there and see it if they can. There's so many rarities on view, um, also from collections all over the United States. Um, it's it's phenomenal. I, I my con my connection to the project um, really comes from another Bard Graduate Center uh, connection with Alexa Griffith Winton, who is like the 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 world's leading Libisologist. I would say um, she wrote extensively on her practice, and I just found Alexa, and we just geeked out on textiles together. And when this project sort of started to materialize with Susan Brown at the Cooper Hewitt, where they both work, um, the pandemic was actually our friend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we had the opportunity that all the, a lot of the papers, the Dorothy Levis papers at the Archives of American Art were digitized and made available to us and they're all also all available to you, everybody out there. You can find them and you can search through her, her massive amount of business dealings. Um, but yeah, so we, we all got the opportunity to really sort of dig into this, this research um, and put it all together and come out with this product. And the exhibition is absolutely spectacular. Um, I am very proud to say that Two of the pieces that are in the exhibition, um, a coat and a poncho, um, are from the collection at the Fitham Museum, where I used to work, and I was able to identify those as uh, key pieces for the exhibition, and so they're on loan there now, and then they're like my babies, and so happy to see them there. <laughs> <laughs> and they really, I mean, the, the other thing about this exhibition that I, I credit I credit my colleagues for the profusion of fashion within this exhibition because it's just that that missing touch that that has been largely absent from discussions on this important designer. And I love to see that fashion takes more of a center stage at the Cooper Hewitt Museum because it's it's not really in the realm of their collection strategy per se. But they have so many things related to fashion in their collection that I just it just gives me such professional gratification to see fashion in the halls of a museum that I have come to love so much. Yes, yes, yes. I have one last question for you. Yeah. Um, as a historian, modern textiles are your area of specialty. What do you think Liebes's lasting design legacy is within this bigger, broader scope of 20th century design? Not just fashion, not just textiles. Okay, that is that's a great question. Um, I think that it's kind of a two prong thing for me, and I'm not sure they can really be teased out from each other. But I think it's the thoughtfulness of color uh, and thinking about color and color choices and and palettes. I think that like cohesive palettes, I think is something that has left it, left its mark on 20th century design across all spectrums of, of industry mm. or even just artisanal production. I think that she was really the, the, the color consciousness was mm -hmm. elevated because of her. I mean, there are other, there are obviously other designers that had a huge role in color in 20th century. I'm not going to, I'm not going to downplay like Alexander Girard, for example, mm -hmm. but 
I think that her reach was broader. And I think that the reach of working with industry, she really is like the bl- blueprint for the, like she's like the original influencer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's to me is a, a legacy that we need to recognize that there were these people that existed before Instagram. There were people out there like Dorothy Liebes who had her finger in every pot and she was steering them all together towards like um, a conversion point of just being the best for everybody. <laughs> the thoughtfulness in her color uh, forecasting, the color uh, palette creation, coupled with that that ability to bring all sorts of different industrial aspects together to then filter into everybody's daily lives. Yeah. That is, that's the legacy for me. And I, I think that that really fits in as well with the, the overall ethos in that period for democratizing design. Mm-hmm. I think she really, she stuck with that concept the longest and the farthest and never yeah. let it go. But she didn't see the difference between uh, something that was a, a bespoke custom order, uh, handwoven um, at whatever pace it takes, um, versus something that was going to come off of a loom from Goodalls and go right into, um, you know, somebody's home in Peoria. You know, it was like mm-hmm. she didn't see the difference between they both have to be excellent. And that, I think, is something that is admirable in ways that I I, I click with that the most. Like, I love... I love handcraft and I love hand weaving and there's, there's nothing more gorgeous than an Annie Albers. But for me, like an Annie Albers that was created for Noel is more exciting and more interesting because, you know, it gets into more people's lives. And that, I feel that is the, the impact that we have on um, the day-to-day world is the most important thing that we we still have to think about in design. And I, I think that that's where she, she fits in perfectly to the current conversation. Well, Lee, this has been a delight. Thank you for sharing your knowledge on all things Dottie with us today. Yes. It has been my absolute pleasure. And I just love to be um, speaking on the gospel of Dorothy. So thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. Lee, thank you again for joining us and sharing your love of all things Liebes. Okay, so really, did this woman, April, ever sleep? It's insane. Just curious. Like, if you go to the back <laughs> of the exhibition catalog and like read, as Lee said, the list of everything that she was doing by year, I'm like, how is this humanly possible? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is there any job she didn't hold within the American textile industry, right? I mean, it's all there, it feels like. And she was kind of like this Wizard of Oz out front, dazzling everyone, while simultaneously she was also like behind the scenes pulling all the strings. So, I mean, it really goes without saying, no wonder her nickname was Dynamo Dot. For sure. Um, And Jack Lennar Larson, who was another famous modern textile designer, he was a little bit younger than Dorothy, once called her a titan, which seems pretty apt. Yeah. And um, <laughs> just just as a side note here, because I couldn't figure out how to get this into my conversation with Lee, but I do want to share my favorite Dorothy Liebes quote with you all. And I think that once I do, it will be no big surprise why, once you hear it. Um, she once remarked, glitter is like vibration. Glitter is what the sun does to grass, what light does to nature. 
Um, and of course, she used so many metallics in her textiles. And as you know, Cass, I'm a big fan of glitter in all respects. Um, but that kind of encapsulates her magical aesthetic to me because like at the same time it was natural but it was also like very glamorous it was simple but it was also very sensual so I just want to say we we heart Dorothy Liebes that's all <laughs> yes we do and dress listeners you can love Dorothy Liebes too if you decide to join us on our upcoming fashion history tour of New York City we will be visiting this exhibition in person and also engaging in a lot of other behind the scenes experiences so we'll be releasing more details and opening the trip up for registration any day now. So head on over to Like Minds Travel to register your interest to be the first to know and sign up for our trip. Yes. And I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider adding a dark, a light, and a bright to your ensemble next time you get dressed. If you would like to keep abreast of our guest today's work, you can follow Lee Wishner on Instagram at PatternPlayUSA, where she will surely keep you abreast of her book, which she mentioned at the top of the episode. Likewise, you can follow us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where we post images of Libus textiles this week. If you would like to search for Instagram content related to this episode, you can use our hashtag, which is hashtag dressed 313. That's dressed 313. And if you would like to write to us, you can slide into our DMs there, or you can also email us at hello at dresshistory.com. And of course, dresshistory.com is our website address. And friends, always remember you can listen to Dressed ad-free now. There's a link in our show notes and in our link tree on Instagram to take you to the page where you can subscribe to our exclusive content, which is the ad-free version of the show. For just $3 a month, you can skip the commercials. And you can also support the show with a donation from the goodness of your heart if you so choose. Always appreciated. Stay tuned. More Dressed coming your way Thursday. Dressed, the history of fashion is a production of Dressed Media. Dressed Media.